0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Adventist History Podcast. It is my pleasure to come to you from HQ. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Doug Morgan, who is the author of a new book called Change Agents. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for being on our show. And I wondered if you could just describe for us what your book is
1: about. Surely. But first, let me say thank you uh, for the opportunity to be uh, here I enjoy the podcast very much myself, and it's just a great uh, uh, delight and uh, honor to to be with you. And uh, "Change Agents" is subtitled "The Lay Committee That Turned Adventism Toward Racial Justice," so it's about a group of people who, in 1943, formed a committee called the Committee for the Advancement of Worldwide Work among Seventh Day Adventists, and in the book, I just shortened that to the Committee. But um, they uh, were prompted by an incident that I think is relatively well known, the tragic uh, refusal of treatment to Lucy Byard, uh, a Black Adventist uh, lady from New York at the Washington Sanitarium. This was in September 1943. And then this group formed, they built a network of, uh, with uh, Black Adventists uh, throughout uh, the country. And they had a role in another development that is relatively well-known, and that is the decision to form uh, Black conferences, colored conferences, as they called them then. And it's not that this committee is unknown. I think in almost every account of this episode, historical episode, they are mentioned. But in this book, I wanted to try to find out a little bit more about who they were and how they went about it. And I, I contend that the change was not automatic. In other words, who they were, how they went about it, uh, had an impact on how things turned out. It's not just an inevitable, uh, Mm. that things would uh, turn out as they did.
0: Yeah. When did the suggestion arrive on the scene for separate conferences? Is this something that Black Seventh-day Adventists had wanted from the beginning? Describe the process of how we got to that point. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Well, it's, it, it's, it's very tricky in a, in a way, because when you say wanted, well, not really. But it goes all the way back. It, but on, on the other hand, in a, in a certain context, yes. And it goes really to the first uh, black Seventh-day Adventist minister, ordained minister, Charles Kinney, in 1889. And he, uh, it was a very, uh, unfortunate and, and embarrassing incident there when he was being ordained at at a camp meeting near Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, the people that he brought there with him, his friends and relatives were not really welcomed and kind of tried to be seated in a certain place and outside of the view of, 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 uh, people who might be coming by. And so uh, it's not just that. I, mean, I, I don't think there was a sudden epiphany, but this led him though to uh, propose that once we have black churches that are large enough to, to, to be such, probably be best where there is such racial animosity and hatred uh, that we have separate churches. And, and, and when we do that, it would be preferable that they want to, it would be preferable to us if we could have a black conference because, and he spoke really more specifically to having a meeting such as that one, that we can run our own meeting. That's way better than having to go to the meeting with everyone which in a sense you could say well that's integrated but not really if you're being forced to sit in the back or there's some kind of divider and so you have this internal segregation so it, it really does go back uh, and um it uh was pushed pretty strongly in the 1920s but uh And we could go into that more. But one of the interesting things about uh, the story I'm trying to tell this book is that this outcome in 1944-45 of these conferences was something that the General Conference had said in 1930 as a result of that push in the 20s. Uh, We're done talking about this. Never again. Don't even bring it up. But 15 years later, there it was. Mm. Mm.
0: So this, this was not plan A. This was not something that Kinney wanted from the beginning. It was kind of, uh, we would rather have full integration and full equality, but so long as that seems not to be possible in the present climate, late 1800s, then we'll we'll take this as an alternative. Is that right?
1: Well, yes. Uh, now, that is, is speaking primarily from uh, the minister's perspective, and, and even they were not unanimous. So uh, it, it, this was not 100% feeling. But there was, I just maybe say quickly that there was one of, of the three major uh, breakaway Black ministers, Lewis Sheath, John Manns, and J.K. Humphrey. Manns explicitly said, I would be happy to be in a conference that is administered by a Black man that and we'd be connected with the whole. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I also want to put with that that these lay Adventists on this committee were not calling for separate conferences. Uh, they wanted to break down the racial barriers in the church and have equality, equal treatment, treatment with dignity, um, a desegregation, at least. And uh, they did speak somewhat to the need for developing black institutions, but they actually uh, did not call for separate conferences. They they, they wanted the church to move in a more direct way to uh, racial justice and fellowship on an equal basis.
0: I think the question that a lot of people struggle with, uh, particularly people who were born on this side of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe this side of 9-11, why was this so hard for church leaders to help construct black schools, black sanitariums you know or at least to allow access to black Seven day avenues mm-hmm. to these institutions that we've built mm-hmm. why why did it take so long for any kind of meaningful change to happen?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, in a word, I would say priorities but that does not mean that um, there was no attempt, or that there was no good faith uh, on the part of the of, of the white brethren. Uh, but uh, one thing that I'll cite, and there, there are really so many factors, uh, but one is that there was kind of an oscillation between saying, "All right, you see," the the the, the argument was that there's Oakwood, but as we start to have Adventists, uh, especially in, in the East, and, the, uh, and, and then when you have this uh, great migration period really kick in of, of African-Americans moving from the South to the North uh, during the World War II era and, and in the decades afterwards, then you have more saying, well, we don't want to, we're not really interested maybe in going down to Huntsville, Alabama in the 1930s. Uh, it, it's not exactly it. Wonderful place to be in terms of of, of uh, racial oppression, or maybe it doesn't. It has a limited curriculum, anyway. So um, then, so so what are our options? Well, there, there were there was in the twenties at one point they they had meeting after meeting, <laughs> uh, hmm. planning committee after you know resolution after resolution. Well, but at one point uh, the decision was well let's open up the schools to let's desegregate the schools so that uh, we don't need separate schools. Right. But, but then they would oscillate back to, okay, well maybe we do. And there would be a sort of a, a partial attempt. There was actually a school started in Pennsylvania in the late twenties or early thirties, but it didn't get the funding. And it, it was really a very tragic situation it, it didn't last at all. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, would, it was just some partial explanations. It's a yeah. story. Well, I
0: mean, I I just I know in my mind that the last twenty five years of the nineteenth century witnessed some amazing institution building by the church when they wanted to, right? Southern, uh, your alma mater, Union, uh, what the Healdsburg, which later became Pacific Union College, even in South Africa. Right. I mean, in the 1890s, it was like year after year, every year there was a new college being planted. And when I've been talking about sanitariums or uh, schools, elementary or schools at all. And it just seems like I, I think the infuriating thing in reading your book is is it's just it's not that there was bad will on the part of the general conference. It's just that the, oftentimes there was an expression of of interest in addressing some of these concerns but just like nothing ever happened where they would say, well, it's up to this individual institution to set their own policy. You know, we're kind of powerless here. And it's like, I I'm putting myself in somebody's shoes as best as I can back then. And I'm thinking, I don't know who to go to. I don't know what the policy is because I mean, in in one case, we talked about uh, Dr. Howard being admitted to the Washington sanitarium when he had cancer two times, the second time getting sent home pretty quickly. Uh, But then Lucy Bayard isn't being admitted to the same institution. And it's like, well, okay. So in 35, you know, that they, they establish a policy that there has to be some, um, what was it? Emergency circumstances or something Mm -hmm, to that effect. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Well, Well, what what does that mean? Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think while on the one hand, a few moments ago, I tried to say, well, there are certain circumstances and attempts were made and so forth and, and I think it's important that, that, to, to recognize that it, it, we're not talking about a situation of just demons on the one hand and angels on the other. But right. on the on the other hand, the f- frustration that you are expressing, I think, in good measure, actually does <laughs> uh, capture something of, of, of what the people who formed this committee felt. And the thing of it is uh, – Couple of the examples that you cited there is that things were getting worse, mm. not better, in the Adventist Church in terms of race relations, at at a time when at least there was some significant movement in the opposite direction in American society, especially if you're in Washington D.C. So yeah. that disjuncture, I think, brought this sense of outrage, uh, which was building. And, and but the Lucy Byard incident, you know, helped light the fuse, so to speak.
0: Yeah, uh, and I think it's important for readers who may be familiar with the Lucy Byard incident to realize that that was not uh, something that just happened and, and and made people upset. That that was at the long end of a string of events. Exactly. exactly. And it, it just seems really interesting to me because in other areas of the Avenus administration. Uh, particularly when Daniels was president, it it seemed to me that there was a pretty clear pecking order in terms of who you go to and when you have particular concerns, but it it just seems like there was the water was so muddy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in these first few decades when it came to concerns of black Adventists and how they were to go about getting redressed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you quote letter after letter after letter written by various people, lay members, clergy, to, you know, a general conference president, to somebody else, just trying to seek clarification, trying to,
1: right.
0: you know, understand what's going on here and, and why things are getting worse. And, and right. one of the reasons why you give that things were getting worse was um, that that Southern white avenues were being placed in charge of of institutions in the north and elsewhere. And they were kind of bringing with them that uh, that that cultural preference, let's just
1: say. Yes. Yeah. And part of it is it has to do with, uh, with clientele. In other words, uh, students who may be from the Southern or even the middle tier states come a little bit North and they don't, uh, or they, they tell their parents that they have to eat at the same cafeteria table or whatever with a, with a black person. And so I, I think that that's, it, it, it's not it's not just uh, oh you know it, pardon me we have to have more segregation but it's like oh these parents are writing letters we're desperate yeah. for students as as we always are yeah. and so uh, there they're, but but it, yeah the trend was in a more um, segregated direction and you know the the the, the I think you're you're really onto an important point there about the um, capricious nature of it as well, because at Emmanuel Missionary College, um, for example, I, 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 there was this oscillation, whereby I think it, it was literally the case that you could be on campus one year, and the next year, the rules are different, and, and that had to be, you know, right. very uh, well. It was. I mean, they. they uh, major protest about it but uh.
0: yeah yeah and and do you are you okay when we talk about it getting worse for black Avenus at certain institutions um i think i think sometimes looking back we are less reliant as Avenus today on Avenus institutions uh, your book for instance change agents is published uh, it's available on amazon and not an Adventist publisher, for those who are wondering, at least not an Adventist marketplace. Um, so in some ways, I think we're less less reliant on these institutions. But I, I get the impression that it's a pretty big deal in the early 1900s that Adventist institutions are excluding certain avenus, right? It seemed it like is. we were more reliant on those institutions back then, and oh. it was a,
1: a big deal to I be excluded. Know i think so and and that's that is a ma- that's a major contextual uh difference when we think about well what might this uh episode of history mean for us but um yes this was the era in which there was a strong orientation i i well i think a much more more strong orientation put it that way toward the 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 notion that we have our colleges to train our young people to go into the work of the church, yeah, and that was valued. It was esteemed uh, in uh, in in the congregations, and for these particular uh, uh, group that I'm, I'm talking about. They were told, I mean, they loved Adventism. They loved the the system. They loved all the publications, the departments, and and they really could see its value. And so they wanted, and uh, just uh, from practical terms, as an employer, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, access. uh, But but really that's secondary to the fact that I I think that, that the vision of uh going to one of our colleges and then going into the work as a teacher, nurse, doctor, preacher or business person you see uh and and so the whole uh call for for change and action does revolve around institutional change which I think might not be well would not be the same today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's it's almost like there's a double whammy because if we don't accept you into one of our senior colleges, you might have to then go to a non-avenue school and there's a stigma attached to yes. doing that much more so. Yes. And and then it's like and you know and then what do you get to me I tell you what the 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 miracle that I witness in this story is that we have so many black avenues today like that they hung with us that yes. they demonstrated yes. a loyalty that was uh, at times unearned yes. undeserved. Okay. Absolutely. And, uh, I, you know, and that's a word, by the way, that, that appears so many times in this story of the, especially in the early, you know, the first couple decades of the 1900s of these Black Adventists who felt the need to demonstrate loyalty in the face of Chief's, uh mm-hmm. quote unquote defection. Yes. And, you know, they, they had to show that their loyalty to a general conference that was kind of keeping them at arm's length. Yes, yes. And that, that hurts me to read. Yeah. Yeah and yeah. it it concerns me the this requirement whether it's implicit or explicit that you need to demonstrate loyalty in order to derive expected uh, the benefits mm-hmm. of equality mm-hmm. within
1: mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh yeah it hurts. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can say that it does. I I think that There is an element that um, made, I don't want to say demonstration of loyalty, but the fact that this committee was able to appeal to Adventist ideals Mm -hmm. actually was part of their effectiveness. In other words, yes, we know about Sheaf, we know about Humphrey, we've made our choice. So we you know, it is striking that there was no ultimatum. Yeah, not, not even, not even to uh, withhold tithe dollars uh, or whatever, but uh, that it, the, the the radical thing then was to expose, mm. let people know, yeah, about what was going on again at a time when it was even more, much more inculcated that you just don't speak badly about the church and you don't question leaders. uh, You know, uh, that, 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 that was a heavy pressure in that direction. And people were given the feeling, and this is one thing that I think this committee overcame that it was somehow wrong for them to speak up Mm -hmm. and to um, insist upon something. And uh, I think that's uh, something that they were able to to resolve and move forward uh, and not allow that kind of manipulation to uh, thwart them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a different world. I mean, today, of course, people are very free with their critiques of the Adventist church, of their government, of, you know, everybody, right. and, and there's right. some positive in that. Right. Uh, but it wasn't like that. You're 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 making that very clear that it wasn't always like that. It was considered an act of disloyalty. I think, you know, of the claims of the of the concerns that these Black Avenues had in the early 1900s. This idea of wanting to share in the economic resources that were being given to to white Avenues and devoted to those to to institutions that and churches that support white Avenues weren't being given in, in the same amount to black Adventists. Help us understand that a little bit more. Um, because I think whenever money is involved, it, it's a particularly naughty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing. You know, we're, yeah. We tend to be suspicious of anyone's motives when they're asked yeah. for, for, for more funds from the church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. How were well, white churches being supported by general conference funds or white schools in a way that black churches weren't?
1: Well, let I think maybe uh, the best way I can begin responding to that would be to look at tithe. Now, I this was something that I didn't really expect. I had sort of noticed some of these documents in my uh, research, uh, and I'm just um, paging here for a moment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, having to do with uh in this in our conference system as you know the tithe money goes to the conference and then a certain amount of up, up the line and so uh elder mckelhanie general conference president i think well almost had a had the very question that you raised because people on both sides um, the, the, some of the white administrators were saying well hey yeah, they're asking for things but they're not willing to um you know, sacrifice to, 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 to uh, raise money and give funds. But on the other hand, some of the black leaders were saying it's not just. Well, so he asked the, the uh, an auditor, uh, Brother Phillips, to look at this. And to me, what, what was reported is absolutely amazing, although in a sense, it's not surprising. But in conferences like um, Illinois, where you had a very large uh, black church in Chicago, and again, the scale of of the conferences is so much different than it is today. That's a little bit of imagination. But similarly, in Los Angeles, Southern California Conference, and, and Greater New York, the amount that was going to pay black ministers, uh, was way under the tithe hmm. that came in from the black constituents. Hmm. Now, in the South, interestingly enough, they had worked out, in, in, in the Southern and Southwestern Union, they had worked out, uh, they had been sort of dealing with this separate a more explicitly separate line of, uh, of, of work for, for quite some time. And they had the accounting balanced out better. But my point in all of this is that... Um, there, there is a sense in which these large black churches, and I suppose in a way that that's not surprising. And, and there's some advantages in, in a system whereby a large church will generate income that will help pay for smaller churches and help them thrive and grow and so forth. Uh, you know, the, the, salaries do, but, um, but on the other hand, if you're looking at it from the standpoint of, of, of equity, uh, it, it, it was. It does seem to be the case that, uh, in, in many instances, the, the the black Adventists were giving a disproportionate amount.
0: Mm.
1: Now, the then you come to the question of institutions. Well, that can be either at the conference or union or or general conference level, but certainly um, that disparity that we've talked about was uh, was there. In other words, there's not always a direct path from tithe to say developing the Riverside Sanitarium in right. Nashville, right uh, which which took a big cooperative effort and eventually was realized to some degree, but that, that there was always that huge deficit there. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, to me, that was the most striking thing that I came up with. Uh, looking at mm-hmm. these conference statistics that came from uh, uh and I don't know that those those were ever published or reported. Certainly they weren't published broadly, but they were in McElhaney's files, you know, they were now open to researchers. But um yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether that answers your question, but no I, I it. mean it,
0: it's just interesting because even even before he was general conference president, um you know we, we had this concern when Washburn was in Washington. And uh anyone who listens to the podcast will know Washburn is among my absolute least favorite characters in Avenous history. Uh, even made a shirt that said Washburn was wrong. Um, he <laughs> did many other good things too. Okay, but uh you know, but I'm I'm trying to dig in the dredges of my memory here. Was there an occasion where the Washburn's work or you know the white work in Washington at that time received some sort of help in paying off a church debt oh, or something right and, oh yes and
1: she... yes yeah and i think that that there there was a glaring injustice there that was never never really uh acknowledged come to terms with that later i don't know that whether it was always so glaring but anyway yeah i mean there were two things one was that uh uh it, they had a, a general conference before the move from Battle Creek, 1902. Just before, they sponsored a, 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 a Sheaf and Washburn to have this big evangelistic campaign in um, Wash in, in DC with the idea that okay, we're going to separate the one church now. It's been mixed race, mm-hmm. but let's have a big campaign and then we'll one white, one black, and then we'll separate the churches. That's a whole, a whole the, that part of it is is another story, but. Um, later, later, uh, uh, chief started a new church, a, the People's Church. All on his own, he managed to, to raise the funding to to acquire it. Uh, there's a long chain of circumstances there, but then we we'll just have to leave it at that. But the general conference never put anything, zero. Whereas, I, I forgot to mention, back to Washburn, What well, I mean... <laughs> He was a piece of work, let me tell you. I, I agree <laughs> with <you. laughs> he went, When he came to Washington, he put down earnest money on property for the white church without any authorization, and Daniels kind of said, oh, well, you really should have done that. But then they went ahead and supported it, and they raised $10,000, big campaign in the review, for the work in Washington. All the while, Chief is bringing in members black and white. I don't know that Washburn was really bringing in any new members, but uh, all the money goes to his church. And then when she finally, uh, well, finally, a couple of years later, has his church zero. Yeah. But then beyond that, <laughs> uh, when the general conference moves and now we need to pay for that, plus we want to have a school and a sanitarium, 100,000 fund, 150,000 f- fund. And you can find statements uh, oh we need to do something for the black work uh, and, and wc white at one point i think tried to uh, make a plea for that but ultimately uh, and there were maybe some reasons versus that, that that they could say well we're suspicious of sheaf whatever but uh the black work in washington was never included in that no. uh and uh, Part of it too was that, well, Nashville was seen as the place where we really need to put, uh, raise money. Uh, but I think that, that that, yeah, that's where there was an absolutely clear outrageous injustice that was never really um, dealt with. Mm. And so, uh, and, and then the slowness then of, 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 um, Responding to it in a significant way, I think, is is a huge part of uh, of the story.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So raising money for our work in Washington, uh, what we meant was our our white work in Washington. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. between the lines.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean no, <laughs> absolutely. So you, you quote a lot from the black press of the day. Uh, in terms of getting some insight into what's happening, sometimes at the ground level at uh, places like Emmanuel Missionary College, Andrews University, now, mm-hmm. is that how how important of a source is that? I mean, is there some things you learned that you only learned from consulting these non-Avanist black publications that that you couldn't you know you couldn't find in either avenus letters or or publications?
1: Definitely, definitely. A very important factor in that, though, was that there was uh, a couple of Adventist ministers, and really the most significant one was Owen Troy, Owen Troy Sr., uh, Very uh, someone who needs, really, he needs a biography. Um, he was pastor of, of Shiloh Church, and then he was at Oakwood for a couple of years and then went back to California, but um, he cultivated good relations with what was called the Associated Negro Press, the ANP, And I mentioned this to say that to a large extent, what's appearing in the black press, uh, I'm talking now about the 30s and the 40s, mm. not so much earlier, uh, was there because the black uh, black ministers such as Troy um, wanted it there.
0: Mm.
1: Now that's not a hundred percent the case because he denied, that he was the source of of some of these sensational stories about uh emc in in the late 30s but certainly yes um yeah you get much much more um information oh. from the black press
0: well that naturally leads to a follow-up question which is were denominational leaders aware of the reaction the often negative press that they were getting uh, among uh, black news agencies, black publications. uh, And and maybe by extension, was the larger Adventist church in North America aware of some of this, this drama that was going
1: on between church leaders? Yeah, yeah. I would say that uh, Troy, whom I mentioned, then would use that as leverage. And he had, uh, relatively good rapport with the general conference. Now, talk about a different setting. In terms of the racial question it, in this era, the general conference was r- relatively progressive as compared to the unions and the local conferences being more repressive. But anyway, that goes to your question because I think that. They were aware to an extent, certain extent, and it was a um, a lever to let them know that people are upset about this. But the latter part of your question about the extent to which it was known widely among the uh, excuse me among the Adventist constituency, I think probably not. Mm. But it was known to some extent. Um, and uh, you all. We also had Elder Peters, G.E. Peters, and F.L. Peterson. Uh, similar names, but they um, were both head of what was called the color department then. And they would uh, use press items uh, sometimes to point out hmm. certain um, problems uh, to the brethren. But uh, yeah, huh
0: yeah I mean because I'm gonna be honest uh, I became an Avenist as an early teenager this is all this was all news to me. I didn't hear about any of this stuff. I did become aware I'm not sure at what age that we had some some regional conferences and there's a distinction between these state and regional conferences um, but this was not part of my my standard Adventist history whether informally in a local church level you know when you kind of get brought up to speed about Adventist church history by, by elders and pastors, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I was introduced to it a little bit when I was in, in college at Southern. Um, but this is something that I think the depth of which the extent of this, this history is, is just kind of in the process of coming to light. I don't want to say for all Adventists, because I think, black Avenues are probably very aware of this more so, I should say, than, than white Avenues have been. And, uh, and I really appreciate you kind of bringing this to light. You, you started with chief I'm guessing. And, uh, and then you're kind of expanding the story forward. You're taking it into the forties is your next step. Are you just going to tackle the civil rights movement next? <laughs>
1: uh, probably not actually. Uh, I don't know exactly, uh, what uh, will be next, but there's still some things that I have in the back of my mind that have to do with the uh, earlier period. And I, I think that I've kind of carved that uh, out as a bit of a niche. Uh, um, yeah, uh, so we'll see. But uh, yeah, Well, I
0: mean, you, you started with, with um, you, you know, you didn't start this way. You started with uh, Adventism in the American Republic and uh, exploring the relationship between the church and, and uh, the state, the American state in this case, uh, how did you transition into into Sheaf in, in chronicling the history of black Adventism?
1: Yeah. Well, part of the, uh, of my interest in uh, the interface between the, between the church and the public square, if you will, well, race relations is an element of that. And, That had been long been an interest, but the uh, striking thing that happened to me was that one day in the year, I think it was the year 2000, uh, the pastor of the first Seventh day Adventist church in Washington, Mark McCleary called me up out of the clear blue sky. He had just come to that uh, pastorate from Philadelphia and the church has a remarkable history. And he, You know, uh, there's some awareness of it, and he thought that, uh, you know, he he wanted to see if someone in the history department at CUC, as it was called then, Columbia Union College, uh, might be interested. And I had a vague awareness. I had heard about Rosetta Douglas Sprague, daughter of Frederick Douglass. I was a little skeptical, frankly. You know, sometimes stories are passed on, but I had also heard um george knight in one of his books well it was the the biography of a.t jones he mentioned this lewis sheaf had a uh, a church in washington that went independent you know Mm -hmm. wow i thought that was interesting and so that was in the back of my mind so um i decided uh and now this was just after i had completed adventism in the american republic so the, (laughs) the timing in terms of my uh, you know, my own uh, pursuits was was perfect. I said, all right, next summer I'm going to dig into this. And mm. that really has been the um, sort of the <laughs> set the agenda. I mean, I didn't realize the different directions that it would take, but it's so rich. Yeah. And so I'm telling you there's a lot more to say, even uh, uh, from uh, let's say the segregation period. That might be my cutoff point for the moment. But uh, that, uh, that's how, you know, and, and one other thing I might mention is that the digitalization of sources is mm. very significant. Um, you mentioned not, you know, well, you became an Adventist as, uh, uh, as a teenager and not then gradually learning some things. Well, people who very well-informed, Black and white Adventists, they never heard a chief sh- <laughs> yeah you know so part of that was i i must sort of just say as a semi martyr to history whatever uh, i spent hours <laughs> cranking through microfilm and i found some things after great laborious effort but i was just beginning then to be able to search full text and that it, it, it keeps going i just since change agents came out the white estate, at least My awareness of this, the White Estate now makes the incoming correspondence to Ellen White and, you know, uh, not just her, but uh, into the estate. Uh, It was already there, but you can do full text search now on that. Yeah. And I found some things, one letter in particular... Oh man, I wish I had that even for change agents. So, um, yeah. And, and then the more and more newspapers keep uh, yeah.
0: uh, coming online full text. This, so, is a, this is a big deal. Sorry, because for those of you guys who don't know, you could go on the website, the White Estate, and you could pull up a scanned image of a particular letter, but that's only useful if you know what you're looking for and when, right? right, right? You can't right. just search through them all. You, you couldn't, I should say, search through them right. all and find find something you're looking for. And it's it, it's a rather laborious needle in the haystack hunt to go through each of them one by one in hopes that one of them is relevant to your research. So exactly. anyway, sorry, I just want to explain that to the people who are watching.
1: No, no, that that's that, right. That, that, uh, that makes it uh, clear because, uh, and so it's huge. I mean, uh, and, and you miss things. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in terms of of uh, going into the the white estate and uh, uh, always very helpful, they would give me everything I asked for. And you go through, blah, blah, blah. and then when when the letters went online, oh, that was wonderful. Even though you couldn't search them, but still, exactly yeah. as you said. And then when you. Uh, uh, Yeah. And now there's the flip side. Sometimes search engines don't aren't perfect either. (laughs) You Find things just through uh, plowing through. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're involved with the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists as well. Um, And uh, we're happy to see that off the ground. And I, I just I wonder if there's this is maybe a future of publication in the future. That's redundant. But uh, you know, where if you find new information about a particular character, you can just update that entry in the encyclopedia online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is it is, is there it's costly to revise a book and, and re, republish right. it. Right. Right. Um, but perhaps as more materials are getting online, more publishing will happen online and we can find a way to compensate authors for their time. Um and, and then we can have increasingly, I suppose, up-to-date information. And, and it might be a relatively small thing going forward for you to say, "Oh, I have this letter didn't have when I published change agents, but
1: mm-hmm. in the future, because yeah. change
0: agents is now online, I can just add a paragraph to it and, uh, and move on, yeah. you know? And, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, with the encyclopedia, I think that it's an evolving um, uh, vision for it and, I don't know, you know, it it also takes money to uh, maintain a website, especially something that mammoth. But I think that uh, uh, it's really headed the direction that you're talking about that will prioritize uh, online overprint and it has that flexibility.
0: Sure. Let me just switch gears here as we wrap this up. There may be somebody who's watching or listening who is interested in pursuing a, a career in Adventist history maybe they just want to tinker with it is there still room for for future Adventist historians I mean has everything kind of been more or less mined? and those who are going to be coming after you are going to be people who are just kind of digging through the details and, and fleshing Ooh. out these pictures I mean George Knight kind of I think specializes in the flyover of Adventist history you know like he Ooh. he deals with long periods of time, he he brings in names. And then the people who have followed George have kind of picked up on the name and then written a biography about them, like Louis <laughs> Sheave, <laughs> as you describe it. Uh, is now that we're several generations into Adventist historians uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in who are not uh, trying to write holy histories, uh, is there still room? Like, what would you say to your students or or anybody who's watching who might want to be jumping into Adventist history?
1: Unquestionably, that there there will always be room. And I will also say, I remember as a college student, reading an, an, uh, an article by a, a professor that was, to me was just so inspiring. And I couldn't conceive of how anybody could find more or say anything more on that topic. But as I went on, uh, I realized, that not, not only are the sources expanding, as, as mm-hmm. I just said, um, but history is never static. E- every generation has to take a, new, a fresh look. Um, and uh, so uh, I think that uh, Kevin Burton, for example, uh, I'm sure I know you are, and I'm sure probably mm-hmm. most of, of the listeners are familiar with. All right, so he's been discovering stuff that no, you know, nobody yeah. knew about. Uh, and but but as fantastic as that is, he only he's finite in terms of, of what he's looking at and uh, the time that he has. And so yes, uh, I just feel very confident <laughs> about the, the the that there will always be room and always need uh, for uh, mm. fresh digging. Uh, yes, into uh, our past uh, and uh, connecting it with uh, you know with what's going on uh, in in the present.
0: Yes, is there a particular field you think you would recommend to somebody who's interested in Avena's history? Like this is this is an area that that so much digging can be done in. It's been somewhat neglected. Mm-hmm. Where would you kind of steer somebody towards?
1: I think there's still a lot by way of, of uh, women's studies that could, is it, like low hanging fruit as they say, mm-hmm. sometimes. Even if you put it in the perspective of, 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 of black Adventist female biographies, uh, Mary Britton uh, in uh, uh, Lexington, Tennessee, we, was a physician, civil rights activist, women's uh, suffrage activist, dedicated Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Dr. Ruth Temple in California, public health uh, major contribution, and it's coming from a deeply rooted Adventist uh, um, perspective. Mm. So I think that's one. I think the international uh, scope of Adventism, uh, I mean, there's a huge need there and of course we need people from all over the world to help fill that in but um yeah well there you go
0: if you're watching you're listening you want to get started in doing avenue history you've heard it from Dr. Morgan there's plenty of space for you to work alongside somebody else uh you could probably even get a mile away from somebody if you really want a social (laughs) distance in in a field here because there's there's so much empty space that needs to be that needs to be filled in built up so Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on this episode of the Avenue History Podcast. Really well, appreciate it. Thank
1: you. That. I I enjoyed it and I appreciate very much the opportunity to, to, to be with you.
0: All right, that's where we're going to wrap up our discussion for today. Hope that you enjoyed the conversation that I was able to have with Dr. Douglas Morgan about his book, Change Agents. There's plenty more to learn about the subject. If you want to go pick up his book, you can do so. I don't get any money for it. I'm not being paid to say this. I think it's just genuinely a really good book that talks about a, a, a slice of Adventist history that is not widely known. And that's what makes it exciting for me. Appreciate the work that he is doing with his book on Lewis Chief and now with Change Agents. It sounds like he's going to go in a different direction in the future, so we're going to see where he goes. It could be interesting. But if you want to pick up the book Change Agents, just go to Amazon.com, search for it there, and you will find it. That is the place to get the book. I don't think you can get it anywhere else, so just head over to Amazon. I'm sure that he would appreciate that. And you will be better off for having read this book. All right. Well, that's all the time we got for this episode. Hope that you enjoyed it. We'll see you in a couple weeks with episode 27 of season two as we wrap up our discussion on World War II. We'll see you then.